having a party A sharpening party I'm standing in line Feeling so fine Holding my pencil The kids in front We're hearing a song about pencils, about sharpening pencils. Once the pencils are prepared, we can write. And if the point breaks, as it does in the song, that won't stop us from writing. We'll sharpen the pencil again. Simple as the song may seem, there are life lessons here about having the tools you need, about the need to prepare and not be discouraged by setbacks, but most important, pencils are means to an end, and that end is writing, plain and simple, to be able to write stories, stories you can share with others at the pencil sharpening party, perhaps. Ready to ground away, here I go I have a nice tip now My buddies just say, wow I'm ready to go, get on with this show My teacher is smiling The day has just begun The song was written by Mike Sowers and performed here by Bob Matthews, both of Bloomsburg, and it's the perfect accompaniment for a guidebook Mike Sowers has also written, Look, Think, Write. And we see on the cover of the book there's a pencil instead of an I in the word write. The subtitle is Thinking Like a Child, Ideas to Encourage Children's Writing. Mike tells us he taught literacy to seven, eight, and nine-year-olds for 15 years. His students weren't just pushing pencils, though. He used art, music, dance, and storytelling to challenge the young writers and to stimulate their creativity and expand and develop their ability to tell stories. As it happens, Mike Sowers has written a memoir in which he remembers his own childhood days, and is growing into adulthood. He may not express it exactly this way, but stories were, in a certain sense, central to his young life. We learn his family owned a news agency that carried newspapers from around the region and as far away as New York and Philadelphia. Mike and his brother delivered the papers, and Mike writes, Every day my brother and I would get up have a cup of java, shoot the breeze with my dad's friend, Gazda, and then deliver about a hundred papers. We folded them into squares so we could fling them from a distance, sort of like a frisbee. We had a beloved dog, Prince, who would take turns coming with us. The papers were carried in a canvas bag slung over our shoulders. Like the mailman, nothing stopped us. In the winter, it was cold and dark. 
In those days, not everyone kept their dogs in the house, so occasionally we would run into a dog. We had close calls. When we finished, we would jump back into bed, catch an hour or so of sleep, and then get up for school. On Saturdays, we would go out and collect payment for the previous week. Most people were nice and paid on time. There were a few deadbeats, but eventually we cornered them. McAdoo was, is, a small town and had many different ethnic groups, all with their own unique foods. Saturdays were a gastronomical adventure. We collected money and we ate. Pasta dishes, halupki, pierogi, sour mushroom soup, latkes, borscht, potato pancakes, and more. The smells coming out of the homes were intoxicating and left a lasting memory. I have a nice tip now. My buddies just say, wow. Snow, sleet, rain, nothing stopped them. We might imagine that somehow might sensed on some level the importance of stories. True, these were news stories, but they were in fact written by someone and shared, and they made a difference in people's lives. And take note of Mike's description of the ethnic food adventure that he embarked on when collecting payment for the papers. We'll soon hear a serenade to a mushroom Mike Sowers has written to tempt us to try something new and expand our horizons. Mike Sowers is a retired teacher, business person, and community organizer who writes children's books and songs like this, and he paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about his work with children and his memoir, How I Remember It. Was there other reading that you did as a young one? Maybe you and your siblings. Were there books in the houses? Were you a keen reader when you were in school? You know, I was not a keen reader, but because we owned the news agency, I was exposed to all the daily newspapers. I was exposed to quite a nice variety of comic books, Archie Comics, Batman, Superman, and I read all of those from beginning to end. I was very interested in sports, so I would read the sports page of the standard speaker. I would read all the back of the cereal boxes. But eventually, as I got older, uh, I started reading other things. But uh, I'm going to say as a family, uh, we were very busy earning a living, so there wasn't a lot of time that I could recall my mom and dad reading to us. Now, the school was right out the backyard, and the, the sisters... They, they did stress a lot of literacy skills. As soon as we got there, and I, and I skipped, there was no kindergarten for me. I went to first grade and was immersed in literacy from the beginning. So, yeah, I would say I, what I got uh, reading, I got via the, the business, which was fine. Some of the stuff was a little bit uh, like midnight, midnight <laughs> magazine probably wasn't something I should have been reading. But it was one, at that time, it was the only newspaper of its kind that came to us. There weren't all these other, you know, kind of shady uh, publications that came down the line. It was all, for example, Hazleton had two papers and twice a day. So that's, you know, and if you go back, uh, I'm a fan of newspapers.com for research purposes. And I'm fascinated when I go to the McAdoo and Southside and see Mary uh, Tillingham went to visit her cousin in New York. And Johnny Boyle's horse died. <laughs> you know, so that's that's the kind of things that were listed in there routinely. And I, I find it fascinating to go back and look at the people at that time seemed to be very much interested in their little communities. I don't think they went far. 
I think their community was where they were. They were focused on their schools. They were running businesses, raising families. And um, there was a lot of interaction, even though there were at least a dozen ethnic groups in the town that I, in, in McAdoo. And there was some tension at times, especially in sports. But for the most part, the town functioned fairly well, as many of those old coal mining towns did at the time, because people were working pretty much. So, yeah, but to answer your question, I, I think I struggled beginning early on as a reader. But thankfully, there, there was always something around that I could grab in the storefront, even if it was the sports page, <laughs> and read it. And you suggested that on the weekends, that's when you got the out-of-town papers. Yes. On the weekends, we were unbelievably busy. And, of course, the newspapers were much larger. And, and in those days, they sent you the supplements. You had to stuff those in. That took a lot of time on the weekends. And then out, daily newspapers, we would just go out with a canvas bag slung, fold the paper into a uh, rectangle, and fling them <laughs> like a Frisbee onto people's porches. But on Sunday, we had to load all those into station wagons. Then my dad had all kinds of different station wagons along the way. And we would go out and, and do those routes you know, through rain, snow, whatever. And it was... Uh, very interesting, actually, when I think back on it, because number one, I always had money in my pocket. Number two, I knew everybody in the town. Another thing, Saturdays when we collected, the aromas would just come out from under the doors, and people were very inviting. They would say, oh, you're Louis's son. Come on in. And I would sit down to pasta or borscht or uh, potato pancakes or something with applesauce, of course. And it, was, it would take me three times as long on that day than it should have. Because all you did was take the money, punch the card, and you were out. It was very interesting. And you write so well about your early years in your memoir. And that was when you were a lad, but you spent many years as an elementary school teacher. And you cared so much about young people and their ability to read when I was hired to teach in Pleasant Valley, the growth of that school district was phenomenal and quick because people were moving in from uh, metropolitan New York, and they needed teachers. So in my small uh, elementary building, Eldred Elementary, perfect little school as it should be, there were teachers from New York City. There were teachers from uh, at the Lehigh Valley. There were teachers from Pottsville. I was living in Hazleton at the time. And more interesting was that they all brought the expertise of their particular college education programs. So there was Temple University, Penn State University, Kutztown, Bloomsburg, uh, Penn State. And we all, and it was very collaborative. It was great. I really, uh, it was totally different than Hazleton, put it that way. There was, there was no um, nepotism involved at all, and being hired there was strictly on, I did some substitute teaching. I did a long-term assignment. They saw that I knew what I was doing. They hired me. They hired me in April, which is kind of unheard of next year. What were you able to bring yourself to those classes at Pleasant Valley? What were some of the things that pleased you most? Um, you know, I think that as a person, I have an ability to, with children and others, to get people to relax, get rid of the anxiety. Once the anxiety is removed, everybody, including children, they open up like a book, and you're able to really teach. And I was never opposed to coming in two hours early and leaving an hour late and driving an hour each way. That was what my life was like. 
because I created a lot of my own materials. At that time, the um, No Child Left Behind and the Race to the Top and the core curriculum were still out here. Teachers had a lot of room for creativity, and I, and, uh, I love that. I created the, the one book I sent you, Fun with the Alphabet. I created that, and it's kid-tested, and they love it. And in addition to the art and the story, incorporated in that was an, was an alphabet auction. It's a little bit of, you know, kibitzing, who's going to vote for me and who's not. So, yeah, that. And then uh, the art that I sent you is mixed in with another writing program. Because the bottom line, and I, I half joke about this, asking seven, eight, nine-year-olds to do creative writing is a form of torture. <laughs> because you're asking them at that stage in their life to bring together basics like handwriting, sentence structure, paragraph structure, punctuation, spelling, uh, context, sticking to the topic. And that, and that is a lot. Even if they're only writing five sentences, and some of them would only write five sentences, some would write, you know, 25 sentences. So I, I, I think I have that ability to have people become relaxed. And then I love to role model, which is important. Uh, so all of the things, the art in, in the books I sent you, oh, that was my model for them. They did not have to do that. Every story I ever put forward to them, I would model. Sometimes we would write the story as a group. Sometimes we would buddy write it. But there was always, before anybody really started writing their good copy, we thrashed it around quite a bit. And that, and that I found, even with seven, eight, nine, ten year olds worked. Topics are important also. So if cows could fly, I have a nose on top of my head, there's an eye on my finger, I just built a submarine and a slew of others that most kids would say, I'll, I'll write about that. No problem. So, yeah, I think the main thing is I think I made the students feel comfortable. And then I, then I worked hard to meet their needs, which was what the game is all about. It was not everybody gets the same material. I figured out what Johnny would like to read, what Mary would like to read, what Johnny likes to write about, etc. And then I worked hard to meet their needs. I think it's harder to do nowadays when you have no child left behind. Because now the little corner, I say, you know, it's going to take a while for them to paint us into the corner, but I think now the people are in the corner. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are leaving the profession. The creative juices can't flow as they used to. When unfortunately, I had to leave teaching. Everybody in second grade, in the second grade curriculum, had to be on a certain page, the page, together, because it was a six-day cycle, and on that sixth day, there was a test. And if, if, if you could just imagine the test, I'm, I was always surprised that these kids just didn't break out in tears. I mean, it, it couldn't have been more intimidating for them. So anti-education, but that's what it had come to, and I'm not sure what it's, what it's like right now. It's been nine years. You're also very good about telling us about a tragic part of your life, and I'm here to ask you if you would share some of that and explain how that horrific event in your life has led you to do the kinds of things you're doing now. Okay, well, after the accident occurred in which my wife Carola uh, died, um, all of the professional counselors I went to said, talk about this, Mike. Talk about this to anybody who will listen, and I have. So, uh, yeah, basically, Carol and I were, were run into by a speeding car, police car. She was killed, and I was sent to St. Luke's for quite a while. And everything changed. I had to leave teaching because I, was, I wasn't I was fit to be in front of eight-year-olds. 
I was emotionally and mentally upset. So I retired early and uh, started moving down the road of kind of clearing the clutter, so to speak. I sold the farm we had just bought. I sold our house in Hazleton. That took a couple of years to do that. I moved to Bloomsburg because of my friend who lives in Bloomsburg, uh, who has helped me a great deal. And I've, I've helped her a great deal. And uh, I started putting my energy into, um, instead of teaching, I started writing. I also thought to myself, there are a couple of things that I'm very proud of that I would like to make sure they don't get swept under the rug. So Carol was a passionate person. She, w- she would speak truth to power on the drop of a dime. And she was always uh, there for the environment, animals, the elderly, the handicapped, battered women, and a few others that I can't recall at the moment. But she, she was front and center speaking up for those individuals. So I, I didn't want that to pass. So uh, one of the things I thought of doing was, because she was a reader, because she loved children, I thought, well, how about a library in her honor? So I started that library at the school where I first taught in Conkletown, but it didn't work. It was just no traffic. And one day while I was visiting Jim Thorpe, which we had often done, I'm standing in front of the Dimmick Memorial Library, and I think, you know, we used to go in here all the time. I wonder if they would even, like, consider this. So I walked in, and I spoke to the director at the time, and... They had never been approached with something like this. It took a while for them to decide to give me a shot, but they did. And uh, I and some of my friends, we raised enough money to buy the naming rights to the Children's Library, Carol Sowers Children's Library. And the Dimmick, it's a beautiful Victorian library nestled into the historic area of Jim Thorpe. Tourists are in and out of there all the time. They love it, and the locals go there even though parking is uh, is at a premium. So that, w- that was one thing. I, so I had to do things. Carol was just so vital. I didn't want her memory to be uh, swept under the rug. So I did the library. I also did a plaque for her at the Carbon County Environmental Education Center because she was front and center on animal rehabilitation, on protecting wooded areas, that type of thing. So we have a little bird viewing area with some Adirondack chairs and a little plaque. And I also did something similar at the Butler Township Community Garden, where we went, as Carol would say, Mike, to support the concept. We didn't live in Butler Township, but we went down and got two lots, and she designed and built a rain garden. So there's a little plaque there. So I I feel like as long as I'm alive, and, and hopefully my daughter and grandson will keep this going, I set up a little bit of money to make sure these things are kept up and we'll keep her memory alive. How often do you get out to libraries, and how do you choose what you feel like you'd like to share? Uh, well, mostly I go to the Dimmick. I try to make my presence there at least once a month, and I let them choose whatever the open date is. I'm so happy to do that. Uh, I've done a story at the Bloomsburg Library. I've done some stories uh, in the Monroe County Library. But, you know, they all have their own little story times. So if I can fit in somewhere, I do. I always, I, I've given the books to like the Danville area public library has copies of my books for homeschoolers or whatever. Just gave copies of the ABC book to the Bloomsburg School District second grade teachers and to the Pleasant Valley second grade teachers, the Berwick Library, the Benton Library. You know, so I've given out those books. And if someone's interested and they know I do that, I'm, I'll drop everything really.
Oh, that reminds me. When I go there, I go there with this fellow. Introduce us. This is the professor. Now, for the longest time when I was teaching, I thought, what a fantastic teaching aid. I saw the man who did this at a street fair in Honesdale. My sister lives in Honesdale. It took me a long time. I'm saying 10, 12 years before I finally got around to talking to the fellow who makes this. He was making Casa's Pizza outside of Stroudsburg and selling it to school districts. And I called him up and I said, you know, I saw your puppets at a street fair in Honesdale. I really would like to use one in my classroom. I said, no, he said to me, what do you look like? (laughs) I described myself and ta-da, he gave me two professors. So I take this one to all of the readings. He starts the show, a couple of jokes about whatever, a couple of knock-knocks. We're off and running. But the kids love it. My shtick is he comes in a suitcase. So just about when I'm ready to start, I'll hide my hand somewhere and go, oh, my gosh, boys and girls, what was that? Oh, I forgot. The professor. And I'll open the suitcase, and out he comes, and that gets them. That's, that's what gets them. Now, I'm used to eight-year-olds whose attention I could hold for several stories, but when it's infants to eight or nine-year-olds and a scattering in between, it's a challenge. So sometimes I get in one story. Sometimes I'll get in more than one, but the professor still draws them in. Yeah. He's a wise fellow. Yes, he is. <laughs> he really is. And funny, you can see. You can see he's got intelligence and humor. You know, you have to watch yourself when you have a puppet in your hand because they'll say things that you wouldn't normally say. They have a little personality. There's a little side personality comes out, within reason, of course, but, you know, a little bit of a sense of humor comes out of the professor. But, yeah, I can always tell, get, I get the feedback from the moms and dads. So I've learned over the years, you know, just where I can go with that. But it's fun. It's a lot of fun. When you're reading to young ones in a library, for example, to what degree do you stick to the reading, stick to the text? Do you act it out in certain ways? Do you loosen up? Um, I, I pretty much stick to the text. However, whenever possible, I'll have them team up with me. So I'll often pick stories that have sounds or words, you know, and I'll have, and I'll say, okay, here comes a boom. Okay, help me with that. And then they'll all say, boom. And my technique is to read. I'll read two pages. Then I flip the book around and let them look. And I give them a lot of time to look. Because uh, one, one of the problems I found with storytellers is they, they tend to race through it. Those kids need time to, because the artwork, it's a picture book. The artwork is fantastic. They want to check out, you know, where that little mouse was behind the leg of the table. So it takes a while. So that's how I do it, and um, that seems that seems to work. But I, I take my time, very slow, and that seems to work. And what about your own writing then? Well, I'm now working on one that true story. <laughs> my wife was working uh, at a physical therapy office, and there was a person there and she had uh, a little problem let's say so this story is about how we're going to help her solve this problem so I'm about halfway through with that one the other one is just a compilation of all the stories that I did uh, modeling for kids sometimes they join me sometimes I did it myself so I have those two the memoir is actually what I want to do with that is add um, music For example, talking about my parents, I would be playing Benny Goodman, let's say, for example. And I want to incorporate some of the pictures that I have from that whole time period I talked about. 
it's not as easy as people might think it is, you know, to put all that together. Because I want to, <laughs> my joke is, yeah, you know, I, I want to do this so it's professional. I'm not just going to do it just to get it done. Before I forget, I just I want to mention another thing that I, that I have done that I, I, I'm proud of is the music. I've written four songs for children. That's another thing I learned is very different. I'm not a musician and I'm not a vocalist. Finding people who would be willing to flesh out my lyrics is difficult. And I, aside from those four songs, I, I, I sent you the, I don't know what to call them, pop tunes. And uh, I, I wound up teaching myself about 12 chords, put those songs to those 12 chords, went to a recording studio in Hazleton, practiced and practiced and practiced, made the recording. At the end, the fellow said to me, well, you could come back tomorrow. We usually give people two shots. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> so I'm, I hope that I can complete that project. I don't think I have any more desires to write songs. <laughs> Once I get the ones I have done, I think I'll be done with that. Tell us about Chicken Mushroom. Oh, the Chicken Mushroom is probably the only mushroom I actually go out and pick. It's delicious. It's almost impossible to confuse it with any other mushroom it grows like a shelf on hardwoods no gills on the bottom so it's easy to clean and it's easy to prepare i usually prepare it with olive oil and garlic and ginger and some soy sauce just cook it up a little bit and then add some pumpkin seeds and peppers at the end but i brought that into school share with the faculty and then i had pictures of the mushrooms and there have you ever seen a chicken well, they're gigantic. <laughs> They'll cover a large area of a tree. So you can go back for days. They don't last long, about 12 days. But you can go back uh, and pick chunks and chunks and whatever. And I uh, showed them to my students. And they, they were just fascinated by this. And I thought, oh, I'm going to write this song. <laughs> so I did. I wrote this song and picture 20 kids. Now, at the beginning of every school year, I, everybody got a kazoo. So picture 20 kids. You know, they need a little break from whatever we're doing. All right, let's sing a song, stand up, kazoo's out, and we would sing the chicken mushroom song, and they would dance like chickens in between the sections of the song. It was great. <laughs> Walking in the woods looking for the chicken mushroom. Glancing up and down all around for the chicken mushroom. When I find that treat, I'm gonna move my feet and do the chicken dance. Up around the bend, I see the chicken mushroom. Nature is our friend, it gives chicken mushroom Now I found that treat I'm gonna move my feet and do the chicken dance Chicky, 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 chicky wicky, wicky, wicky mushroom Chicken Mushroom by Mike Sowers, our guest today on Art Scene, performed there by Bob Matthews of Bloomsburg. 
one of the songs that Mike has written to engage young people and also to celebrate the wonders of the world of nature, chicken mushrooms. And he has some wonderful experience with teaching children, 15 years, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, coming to understand, he thinks, how to stimulate creativity and imagination and love for learning and for writing. I'm holding in my hand one of the books that he has written, Look, Think, Write, Thinking Like a Child, Ideas to Encourage Children's Writing. There's another, Fun with the Alphabet, Alphabet Art and Alphabet Stories, and Bedtime Nature Stories, Woody the Woodchuck, Watch Out, and A Bug's Eye View. For more information about Michael Sowers, you can contact him at msowers50 at gmail.com, msowers50 at gmail.com, and Sowers is spelled S-A-U-E-R-S, msowers50 at gmail.com. And as you heard him say, he loves to read to children, and he will do it at libraries or wherever he's invited to do so. And if you're interested, you can contact him at that email address. And do the chicken mushroom.